today, the difference between faith and Christianity. Welcome to Coffee with Kramer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Kramer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Now, to clarify just a tiny bit, we had a previous episode in which we talked about bad faith. But the idea of that kind of bad faith uh, is when our doctrine goes wrong, even a little wrong, and then the result is that our practices go drastically wrong, that we have the wrong influence on society and we end up preserving the wrong things and so on. So that's what I meant by bad faith in that previous episode. This is, this is a different kind of bad faith. It's a different problem. And it's when faith... <laughs> If you'll, and, and work, the, the expression is appropriate. You're going to think this is weird. But it's when faith is promiscuous, when faith is too indiscriminate. And I love that, I love that expression because it, it actually is the metaphor of Scripture uh, that's used about bad faith. So it's, it's appropriate, and it is perfectly applicable to the problem I want to talk about today. Because, and and this is just foundational to make the point today, but Christian faith is specific. I mean, you can tell it's specific by the fact that I put an adjective in front of the word faith, which was Christian. There are certain things that make Christian faith Christian and not something else. And central to that, and this is just sort of built into the conversation, it'll come out a few times today in passing, central to that to that faith and to what makes it specific what makes it you know faithful <laughs> to the faith is the resurrection so the underlying assumption in today's talk is that our faith in the resurrection sets us apart from everyone else and from every other faith the resurrection is and i know a lot of people think about it in a dozen different ways but in the new testament and my study in Luke and Acts is what transformed my thinking about this, or clarified, I guess I should say, my thinking about this, that the resurrection is the testimony that Jesus is Lord. Obviously, he's Lord no matter what, but what makes us aware of that is the resurrection, because death is the declaration by the world that no one else is Lord. As the world devours one person after another, it is constantly saying, you thought you owned me, but I ate you. And that makes me confident that you did not own me. So our lordship comes, comes to a constant demise in the grave. And when the rulers in Jerusalem, Roman rulers and Jewish leaders, when they wanted to erase these declarations about Christ, that he was the Messiah, that he is the Lord, they chose death in order to, to overcome those declarations of lordship because death is what always destroys someone's claim of ruling. 
You just don't rule when you're dead. That's just all there is to it. So put Jesus in the grave and have it done with. And then when he rises from the dead, that declaration is more than simply, I've overcome your opposition. It is the statement that he is the one and only who can actually declare lordship over all of creation, and it means something because the earth could not consume him. And so in that day, and that's what Christians declare in the gospel, in the kerygma, from the beginning, and we are witnesses of his resurrection. You see it immediately after in Acts chapter 2. So uh, as we become faithful in our Christianity, what we're really declaring is that we have faith in the resurrection of Christ, and therefore that ultimate statement of our Christianity, Jesus is Lord. Those are equivalent statements. I believe in the resurrection. Jesus is Lord. And it's the resurrection of Christ that does that. Okay, so that's just uh, foundational, sort of underlying everything else we're going to talk about. It is appropriate when we use the language about Christians, about ourselves, that we are believers. It's It's an appropriate nomenclature, you know, so, well, they're believers. They're believers in Christ is what we mean by that. The scriptures use that language. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about how we uh, set aside ourselves and our relationships so that we are faithful, he uses the language of believers. What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The unbeliever is not simply a person who's skeptical about everything. It's a person who isn't in Christ. And so our being a believer is about us being a believer in Christ, and it's appropriate to use the language that we are believers. Acts 16 does the same thing. When Paul is uh, talking about Timothy, and it, you know, Luke is talking about this in the narrative, and it says uh, Paul comes to Derby and Lystra, and there's a certain disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who believed is a believer. That's the idea of that. A Jewish woman who believed, but his father was on the outside. He's a Greek, a Gentile of some kind. And so, and the, you know, and this is the day when everybody who's involved in Christianity is Jewish. It's just sort of a subsect of Judaism at the time. But then, and so all of those people believed in something, but they didn't believe in Jesus. But Timothy's mother did, and his grandmother did, as we know. So anyway, there's Acts 16's example. Christians are believers. That's fine. So using the language to say, I'm a believer, that's fine as a description of a Christian. But there's something about it that's also insufficient if we were to use that as the actual characteristic that makes a believer a believer, that makes a Christian a Christian. It's, it's good nomenclature, but it's not specific enough to make the point of what a Christian really is. And the reason for that is that faith, and this is the reason Christians can be called believers is also because of this, that, that faith, belief, by the way, those are interchangeable in our conversation today. I know we use them slightly differently in our culture. We tend to use the word belief generically and then the, the word faith religiously. But in Scripture, they're used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. They're, they're just... Uh, again, it's just a, a nuance of English, not in Greek, not in the New Testament. So when I talk about believers, I mean faithers, but, you know, we don't use that word. It's not a, it's not a part of our language, not the way we speak. 
So belief or faith is essential to Christianity. That's why it's okay to call Christians believers. That makes sense. They're ones who believe in Christ. It's just like saying they're in the way when it, when it talks about the way in the New Testament. Well, there are lots of ways, but when you say the way, you mean the way who is Christ, right? So same thing here. So belief is essential to our Christianity. That's the idea in Hebrews 11, by the way, when it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, right? That's what it means to say something is essential. It's necessary. You have to have it in order to be that thing, in order to be a Christian, in order to be a follower of God in any, of any kind, by the way. You have to have faith. So because belief is essential, it makes sense that we call Christians believers. But faith is not sufficient. Now, I'll, kill, I'll clarify. I know it's going to make people nervous that I say that doctrinally. Oh, no, faith alone. Yeah, true in one way, but not true in another way. So when, when I say faith is essential, that's important. But it's equally important to recognize that just because something is essential doesn't mean that it is sufficient. And by the way, that's apparent also in Hebrews 11 in that same expression when he says, without faith, it's impossible to please him because whoever comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who trust in him. That language says it, it, it's one thing to just say you have faith in general. It's another thing to say you believe certain things. And that person who pleases God has to come to him believing certain things, not only that he exists, but also that he rewards those who come to him. That's what it is to have faith in God. By the way, we're even more specific when we talk about it in terms of Christianity. So faith, saying faith is not sufficient here is simply making the point that there are lots of people who are believers, uh, and but not Christians. There are other religions. There are, there are believers in Hinduism, believers in Islam, believers in Buddhism. There are believers in other religions. And in, in, in fact, the language that we use about somebody who's really committed to the ideology of anything, uh, any kind of discipline, chemistry or evolution or cosmology or anything else, we describe them as true believers. That's the language, the idiomatic expression that we have in our culture for people who are really committed to the ideology behind something. They're true believers. But they're not, that doesn't make them Christians. Well, he's a believer in cosmology. Therefore, he must be a Christian. That would be absurd, right? You get the idea. I, I know. But there's something important coming out of this. Now, to clarify, doctrinally, obviously, faith is sufficient in terms of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace, you're saved through faith. But even that recognizes that our faith is contingent upon the grace of God, so when I, when I say faith is not sufficient, what I mean is that the faith which saves us is not empty faith. It's not simply having faith. It's faith in a specific truth, which is a specific person, Jesus Christ in this case. It's faith that has substance. That's why I'm talking about the resurrection. Our faith in Jesus is that because he rose from the dead, we realize he is Lord, and so we declare he's Lord. It's, a, it's not a thin faith. It's thick faith, as we could describe it. It's not just subjective, like, oh, I have faith, and I'm just going to muster up belief in these things. 
it's not just the the experiencing of faith that we have or the holding of faith that we have, but what that faith is in. So it's objective faith that makes it so important for us. Okay, so there's the idea of just doctrinally backing up and saying, I realize that, of course, faith is sufficient when it comes to our salvation if our faith has the substance of Christianity in it. I believe Jesus is Lord for those reasons that I was just talking about. All good. It's a little, So what I am trying to get at is a little like a conversation we could have about education or about technology. They follow the same pattern. They're not, they're not a, well, they're pretty close to identical. The parallels are remarkable, that is. Each one, faith, education, technology, they all have some inherent value. We need to have them, and it's sort of built into us that we have to have them. Uh, We don't pass down the knowledge of how to do chemistry genetically. Uh, You don't give birth to someone who is going to be a great chemist because they understand, uh, they know the periodic table off the top of their heads because they were born with it. Uh, We don't pass down information genetically. We pass it down through teachers, through education. And so our world depends on people learning things, growing in knowledge as they grow up. So education has some inherent value. Without it, you can't do anything. Technology is the same way. It's a means of managing the chaotic world around us or nature around us so that it serves us better, and we have to do that. But just just the ability to harvest food or anything else depends on technology. So, And faith is the same way. You have to believe in something. There is some inherent value to faith. Each one, though, belief, education, and technology, each one of them also has some risks involved with it. Think about education. I always use the example because I used it in my dissertation. Uh, I always use the example of Germany in the 1930s, and and it's certainly not the case that they weren't learning anything of value, but it certainly is the case that their education was also clouded by this Aryan supremacy and the sense, and, and this was happening in America too, by the way, so it's not unique to Germany, but Germany makes it obvious in the way that it uh, expanded and became completely controlling of where the culture went uh, during that decade and following, or just immediately following that decade as well. And so, you know, education is risky if you're teaching bad things. That's the point I'm making. And technology is the same way. Of course, technology has inherent values, but it also has inherent risks because you can do terrible things with the technology that you develop. Yeah, you can heat up water and make steam and generate electricity, but you can also blow up Hiroshima. So it's every kind of technology has risks built into it for the same reason that it has inherent value. And faith is the same way as education or technology in that way. It has inherent value, but it also is risky. You can believe in the wrong thing. Objectively, you can believe in the wrong thing. You can also believe in the wrong thing partially because your belief becomes promiscuous in the, in the language that I'm using today. So, and, and what I'm implying is that belief and education and technology all are dependent in some ways on their object, that is, what they are about. So what is our faith about or what's our faith in? 
just like I would say, well, what were you taught? <laughs> or what did you create with your technology? Or how did you use your technology or even your education? So, okay. So now let me, let, me, let me get to why I'm bringing up this conversation. And that's by giving some examples first. Some examples of where our faith is too indiscriminate, where we're just spreading it around generously, but possibly erroneously, and almost certainly harmfully toward the faith that really matters for us, which is our Christian faith, the faith that we have in the resurrection. So I can give you lots of different examples that, you know, the, the first one is, is an easy one. We've, we've, we've done entire episodes on this particular topic, and it's our faith in realism, our faith in the way of seeing the world that some, some would call naive realism, our way of seeing the world that's sort of naturalistic, sort of materialistic, uh, where we think that the way we perceive the world as a bunch of material objects that exist independently of our seeing them or our experiencing them at all, and this is, for those of you who are listening closely and paying attention to the kinds of things I'm describing, this may trouble you that I'm saying it. I would just encourage you to go back and listen to some of the conversations we've had about this, including in an episode we, we talked about where we said we were not as different as we think we are. That one uh, really makes the point. So anyway, realism uh, or naturalism or materialism, any of those things where we think of the material world in this way, well, those objects exist out there. and Maybe God will do something about them at some point, but uh, that would be a miracle if he did anything to intervene in the material world. That All of that uh, way of seeing the world is just normal to us. We have uh, indiscriminate faith uh, that the world around us is the thing that we perceive the way we perceive it, and, it's, and there's nothing really to question about it. That's why it's called naive realism. Now, here's evidence that that could be a problem, and I mentioned it briefly just a second ago. The evidence that that view of the world is a problem the view where you simply look at the wall and you say, yeah, it exists independently of me, independently of anybody thinking about it. It's just, you know, it's just what it is. The evidence that that's a problem is our tendency to see biblical miracles as proof that there is something supernatural. So pause for a second here. When, when we see miracles, when we see something, you know, a sign, a wonder, or a power, as they're actually described in the Bible— not really the word miracles in the Bible, even though we translate them some, sometimes that way. It's just signs and wonders and power. So we see something unusual happen, and we think of it as a miracle. Our tendency is to use that miracle to say to other people, see, God does exist. See, there are things other than just the material world around us. That thinking is not biblical thinking, and I, I'm not saying it's evil thinking, it's not evil, but it's not how the Bible talks about miracles. I mean, you know, when Jesus walks on the water to, you know, the disciples see him walking on the Sea of Galilee, they don't say to themselves, oh, there must be a God. Wow, supernatural things do happen. They don't say that. They say, there's a ghost over there. They just think it's some supernatural thing that's happening, but they presume there are supernatural things in the world. It's the same thing as, you know, when we, when Jesus heals the man who, who's at the pool of Bethesda. 
it's not a matter of saying, see, supernatural things can happen. You can be healed. They all believed they were going to be healed when they were put into the waters of the pool of Bethesda. What Jesus was saying is, you should listen to me because I am able to do this supernatural thing. I have this power that you didn't see elsewhere. And so anyway, our tendency, though, is to use miracles as a way of saying to people, you ought to believe in supernatural things. That's not the point of miracles. And that, th- that thinking, oh, well, if, if we could just get people to believe in something beyond the material world, then they're halfway to being a Christian. Again, it's not bad logic. It's not bad reasoning, but it's just not the way faith or the supernatural is talked about in Scripture at all. And that thinking uh, leads us to this conclusion, that thinking, that is, that miracles are a proof that there's something supernatural out there. It leads us to the conclusion that anything supernatural will help our case for faith in God, faith in Christ, faith ultimately in the resurrection. And so what that does to us, and and I'm not, it doesn't have to do this. I'm not saying it's necessary that this happen. I'm just saying it happens. Uh, It happens all the time. And, And I mean it in terms of people that I know and care about and respect and, and people that we also, uh, you know, well, anyway, uh, lots of people. So here's the, here's the thing. When, when I say it leads us to believe that anything supernatural is going to aid our case, that people ought to believe in Christ, it turns up in this way where we start believing in anything that's declared supernatural. And so all kinds of paranormal phenomena, you know, we're we're, we're listening to people describe ghosts in their house and saying, well, maybe they should believe in ghosts in their house. Maybe they ought to believe that it's haunted in some way. And, and, and after all, we believe in something supernatural. So, and, and we start thinking that being skeptical about these absurd shows where the camera is shaking and the light's always green and it's dim and there's some flash over there and there must be a ghost in the atmosphere somewhere— that believing in that is somehow helpful to Christianity. And so a lot of Christians do believe in that kind of stuff. And I'll just say stuff in general, you know. Cryptozoology is the same way. A lot of believers, and again, people I care about and respect, and I don't have any doubt about the sincerity of their faith in Christ, also embrace a lot of cryptozoology. You know what I mean? The, you know, the creatures that exist out, that are supposed to exist out there that nobody can really find, but we found their footprints. And so it's Bigfoot or Yeti or the Loch Ness Monster. And, you know, when I was in elementary school, I loved reading those books and seeing what the claims were about it and so on. And I understand that people have experiences that make them say, it must be true, it must be out there, you know. But believing in those things doesn't, help our faith. And it doesn't strengthen our case to the culture that's so materialistic that they ought to believe. Why not? Let me let me give you a different kind of example. We have a willingness to embrace the extraordinary, right? I mean, that's normal. That's normal for Christianity because it's extraordinary to say someone died, not not just had a fainting spell, but died, was good and dead three days, and then rose from the dead, got up and walked out of the tomb. There is something extraordinary, something unusual, something eccentric 
about that kind of belief. That's fine. But what that converts to sometimes in believers is that we think, oh, it's a good thing for us to be willing to embrace extraordinary faith, extraordinary beliefs, extraordinary claims. So, for instance, extraordinary claims like conspiracy theories. So, the JFK assassination. I get it. You can make all kinds of arguments for why he was shot, wasn't shot. (laughs) That Elvis is still alive, Daisy's pointing out from across the room, uh, the producer. Uh, That Elvis is still alive, that he's in Brazil hiding out somewhere, you know, or something, wherever it is that he hides out. Uh, you know, or, you know, anything. So all those kinds of conspiracy theories that someone is hiding the true information about who shot JFK, that some, that there's a trilateral commission running the world, that, uh, there was, that that Pizzagate is true, or that JFK Jr. is going to reemerge and assert some kind of authority that restores order to our country and so on. Those kinds, embracing those kinds of ideas and saying, oh, I know, I know the mainstream of society doesn't believe in it, but but I do, I have faith in these things, and we know it's going to come true. And I, I mean, I'm choosing absurd examples, but we have some that come closer to home. But with all of those kinds of things, our willingness to embrace the extraordinary seems like it's sort of normal for us because we were willing to embrace a belief in a resurrection. We may think that faith in extraordinary ideas opens the door for faith in the extraordinary claim of Christianity, that Christ rose from the dead. But in reality, that's not what's happening. In reality, we are lowering the value of Christianity's extraordinary claim to just another act in this intellectual sideshow that goes on in our culture. Ah, come over here, you know, the circus barker, and you'll see this really weird person and this really weird idea, and we just become one more sideshow in the culture. Or, just as bad, we don't convince people that the resurrection is more believable. In contrast, the more extraordinary things we believe in, the more we convince people that we're just gullible people. Uh, we just, you know, we're easily convinced, easily duped easily pulled into that sideshow, which itself becomes another reason that people do not trust what we tell them about the resurrection. You know, it's funny. I remember uh, having debates uh, with a a really nice guy and a guy, I I mean, I never see him. Uh, We interact a tiny bit on social media every once in a while. His name is Davis Smalley, and he was just super nice, and we had a great conversation for a while. He's an atheist, we had a good conversation. We had a radio uh, exchange, and I did a, sh- a show for him on his podcast where we just talked about things and uh, debated sort of, uh, you know, why I have faith, why he doesn't, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I said on more than one occasion to him, I'm more of a skeptic than you are. Uh, and I said it to him in the sense that uh, he is skeptical about faith in Christianity. He's skeptical about anything supernatural at all. But he's not skeptical at all about the claims of science or the claims of other disciplines that are 
science adjacent. And I and I don't mean by that the paranormal weird stuff. I just mean things I think that are trying to become scientific in their approach to things. He embraces those things willy-nilly, outright. And I, you know, I told him, well, look, I'm skeptical about, and what I really meant when I said this, by the way, I'll just say this real quickly, even though it's not a part of today's point, uh, is worth saying on the side. What I really mean by it is not that I'm a skeptic about everything. I'm a skeptic about when science tries to make cosmological claims. I'm a skeptic about when physics tries to make metaphysical claims. So when you try to go beyond observations and repetition and the ability then to make statements that you can justify based on the research that you've done to trying to theorize about things that are not necessarily justified by the research you've done. By the way, people on my side of the aisle do that just as much. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing one group or the other. I'm just saying uh, in a lot of ways, I've adopted a completely skeptical view of the world but not when it comes to my faith in Christ. So, and by the way, none of these examples, not the paranormal stuff or the cryptozoology or the conspiracy theories or any of that kind of stuff, none of that stuff is unique to Christians. All kinds of people believe in those things. So I'm not, I'm not picking on Christians today. I'm speaking to those of us who are believers about something we need to recognize about the unique value of the faith that we have in the resurrection and how carefully we ought to guard that value. So none of the examples I'm giving are unique to Christians, and that's part of the point of giving those examples. We want our faith in the resurrection to be unique. We want our faith in the resurrection to be sui generis, its own kind of thing, not like anything else, both in its source because there is nothing else like the resurrection. You know, even when David Hume is attacking the concept of miracles, and he has, in my view, and a lot of people hold this view, but in my view, he has the strongest argument against the possibility for miracles of any philosopher. And I'm not, I'm certainly not saying embrace it. I believe in the resurrection. But David Hume's argument against miracles, I'm not going to go into it. I'm not going to get into it at all today. Another day, that'd be a fun show. We should do that fun episode The point here is that in David Hume's arguing against miracles, he brings up all the silly stuff, you know, people doing magic tricks and stuff like that and people being deceptive about what they say and blah, blah, blah. But the one that he has to get to is the resurrection. He has to deal with the resurrection because that is a unique claim. There is nothing else like it. Uh, Jesus overcoming overcoming death is the declaration that Jesus is Lord. It's the foundation of everything else. We need our faith in the resurrection to be unique because the resurrection itself is unique and because the impact that it has for us to realize that Jesus is Lord of all is transformative. So both in its source and in its effect, we recognize that our faith in the resurrection ought to be unique. So the most, and and the way this comes out as a problem, and I see, oh man, this happens to us all the time, and it just grieves me. The most important examples I could give are the ones where on exactly the same evidence, we embrace one claim and then reject another. In the, in the examples like this, where we're expressing faith in something, even though we're being hypocritical about the way we came to faith in it, 
because the exact same evidence causes us to believe this ex- extraordinary thing or eccentric thing and then reject some other claim that's more normal to society, that fact weakens then our justification to other people that our means of coming to faith in the resurrection was meaningful. So, for instance, on this, on this example where I'm saying we use exactly the same evidence to embrace one claim and reject another, now don't, you don't jump ship on me here. Just give me five minutes to get out of this quagmire I'm about to walk into, okay? Not a quagmire because of the clarity of the ideas. They're perfectly clear but uh, just a political quagmire. So I'm just going to criticize a, a statement that Donald Trump made and the way that he made it. But I'm not, I, you know, I, I mean, I've been transparent on this since 2016. Not a supporter of Trump, never have been. And if you're listening, you probably already know that and probably have already decided it's okay that that's the case. But I'm not jumping on the bandwagon or going political crazy here. I just want to deal with one particular claim that he made. So hang with me for a second. The statement, and I heard him say this in the, in the first debate where he brought it up, and I heard him repeat it constantly throughout his campaign back in 2016 and then again in 2020, saying, I will accept the outcome of the election only if I win, because the only legitimate election is one I win is a problem, right? That's not, that's not a rational statement. To use the successful outcome of an election as justification for taking office and then the unsuccessful outcome of the same election as justification for resisting someone taking office is evidence of a fault in our reasoning for having faith in something, for believing in something. That's evidence of a problem. If we're embracing one thing and rejecting another based on the same kind of evidence, then we are saying to anyone who's listening to us, oh, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't trust me. I'm not a rational person. I don't make decisions based on anything that makes sense to anyone else. That's where we end up. Now, hang with me. I'm moving on. Science does the same thing. I won't go into any details here, super famous uh, scientist from the 20th century, especially Jay Gould, a leading thinker in evolution, had a student who was a young earth creationist, whom I respect, by the way, whom whom I respect in a lot of different ways. So I'm not criticizing the person, nor am I criticizing the ideas, but I just want to make this point. Rejecting Jay Gould's teachings about evolution and, you know, the age of the earth and all those kinds of things, even though he wasn't about the age of the earth, just the, you know, periods of time that would be involved in evolution. Rejecting Jay Gould's teachings about evolution, but then embracing the claims of his young earth creationist student because that young earth creationist student studied under Jay Gould is problematic. I like the authority. I, I like the knowledge. I like the the uh, the uh, certainty with which this scientist can speak. But uh, but I I only embrace the ideas of this student, whose ideas I embrace on the claim that it's because he studied under this this great thinker. But I reject that great thinker's ideas. There is and again, you can do it, but there are risks involved in what we're doing. And by the way, I'm not saying we can't believe Genesis one and two just as it's written. I do. I absolutely do. I am saying that we can't arbitrarily jump back and forth, and it's not really arbitrary. It's capricious. We add a will to it. 
I don't have any justification for it, but I choose this one over that one because I like it. I'm saying we can't arbitrarily or capriciously jump back and forth between believing and not believing based on exactly the same input and expect anyone to take our faith seriously. So, you know, sometimes our faith, so this is built into Christianity. I'm going to repeat this. Our faith is sometimes about believing in things that are eccentric to the culture. That's, that's, I mean, that's just who we are. Believing in the resurrection is eccentric to our culture, outside the norm, right? Eccentric. The lordship of Jesus is eccentric to our culture. But if that belief makes us think that we have to start rejecting every belief that's built into our culture, that's central to our society, then what we work ourselves toward is absurdity. Not just in the culture's view, by the way, not just because we've rejected that culture, but because we're rejecting reality, because a lot of things that our culture embraces are true or real, that it's better to eat than to be hungry, for instance. You know, it's easy to give examples. I remember when I was in high school, I, uh, I had this experience of, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been a science fan. I'm terrible at science. I don't, I don't know. There's something wrong with me having the patience to do uh, experiments correctly or something. I don't know what it is, but I love it. I love reading about it. I love the consequences of it. I love, I love scientific stuff. That's why I love to do astrophotography, but you don't ever want to count on me to figure out how far apart, uh, you know, uh, two stars are or something like that. You don't want to measure uh, the rate of progress of a, of a, uh, of an asteroid toward the earth based on me. We'll all perish. Uh, but I'd love to take a picture of the asteroid, you know. So anyway, so I was the same way in high school. I loved math, and I, and therefore I love all the science that goes with it. So I had, you know, I had a pastor, and I loved my, I absolutely loved my pastor, and and was mentored by him in so many different ways, uh, spiritually. So I absolutely respected him. But he was in that school, and this was in a, in, in a, a different uh, particular movement. And it was, you know, it was, it was a sort of a rejection of all the stuff that didn't make immediate sense to them. And so, and this was stuff that was being embraced by the culture. And in this particular case, you know, he said, well, there's all that nonsense of Albert Einstein and relativity. And even those, those uh, scientists who talk about quantum physics and subatomic particles and stuff, then, you know, he was saying all of that kind of stuff. And I just said, uh, you know, I wasn't trying to be combative or argumentative and he didn't take it super well, but he wasn't angry. But, but I remember it's an uncomfortable exchange. But I, re- I remember responding, and again, I'm just in high school at the time, you know, saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm pretty sure the bomb that exploded over Hiroshima or Nagasaki, I'm pretty sure those blew up because of those theories. And, you know, they're building a nuclear power plant in Glen Rose, not too far from here, based on these theories. That's that's what they're built about. And it was just, it was just, uh, it seemed obvious to me that there was no harm to our Christianity believing in general relativity or specific relativity or believing in quantum physics of some kind. I mean, how does that affect our Christianity was my thought. But I think the promiscuousness of faith in a simple form of realism or materialism that I was talking about earlier Uh, made it hard for him to hear that and made it so that we became, in that particular sector movement, 
sort of marginalized. And I, I'm not, I don't, you know, if people are marginalized for the right reason, if we are shamed, let it be because of the cross, not because we can't embrace quantum mechanics, you know, or something like that. And so when we demonstrate capriciousness in the way that we assign belief to things, then we're robbing our faith in the resurrection of any gravity. I mean, I'll say it one more time. If, if we demonstrate capriciousness in the way we take on beliefs, in the way we assign faith to things, then what we're doing is robbing our faith in the resurrection of any gravity in our culture. We're, we're taking away the uniqueness of that faith that we have in the resurrection. I, and I would say this to Christian leaders. Uh, our college, Criswell College, where I'm president, is, is all about producing people who can be ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, professionals. That's the way we define a Christian leader, and we give specific definitions to those things. And so I will say to Christian leaders of any kind, this is not just pastors, although I see it in pastors a lot, but whether you're a school teacher or a counselor or whoever you are, as a Christian, or, uh, you know, you've got friends that are less mature in their faith and you're leading them in their faith as Christians, we need to be different in the way we lead and, and, and guide other people toward their faith through our faith than the things that we see in the culture in general. So as an example, for instance, there is a strong parallel, unfortunately, that can be seen between the way Christian leaders speak in our culture and the way talking heads speak in our culture on cable networks. So, and in fact, a lot of our Christian leaders are some of the talking heads on the cable networks, which is, you know, part of the problem. But, but that's not what I'm getting at today. So think back with me, just in terms of when I say cable network talking heads, you know what I, I think you know what I mean. But, you know, you can think back to when journalists, and this, I'm just creating a parallel. I'm not, not going off on journalism here. But when journalists were experts in research and in investigation and, and then in communicating clearly and as impartially as possible that information that they had harvested, then it made sense that there was a, a tremendous respect for journalists, that a person like Walter Cronkite would be the most respected person in the country or something. That made sense in those days. Now, and I'm not, I don't mean to bash it, but I mean cable news, and I mean on both sides. Cable news has changed that to where people who have no expertise pontificate with absolute authority about things that they don't have the knowledge to pontificate about, economics and law and so on. You can gain expertise in those things, and you can have experts speak about those things. I'm not saying that. But, you know, when what, what we have as the most influential speakers in our culture right now are people who don't know anything about it in terms of expertise and yet speak as if they are sitting on the throne of God making declarations about what our culture should be. Surely Surely, you can recognize that on Fox News or MSNBC. Surely, you can recognize it, right? Okay. Christian leaders can fall into that trap. 
thinking that we have to be experts on economics. We have to be experts on the entire ballot and how you have to vote. We have to be experts on law and legal solutions and so on. You know, that's in, that, in those cases where we start acting like that, where we start speaking like that, which happens all the time. I hear it in pulpits, and I hear it from Christians who are debating with each other, as if we're experts on everything. In those cases, it can become very confusing where faith in the resurrection, that is, faith in the lordship of Christ, becomes faith in the current social order, faith in our historical tradition, faith in our personal preferences faith in a certain theorist's view on economics or anything else. That can be a huge problem. And so let me make the point. The things, and and this is parallel to other statements that I've made, the things we believe, the faith that we have, the things we believe are only made significant by the things we refuse to believe. This is the point. We have faith in this. We do not have faith in that. Believing in the resurrection has to be about believing in the resurrection. It is the sine qua non of Christianity. The thing without Christianity is not what it is. So believing in the resurrection should be about that. Irrational people who believe in the lordship of Jesus, who follow him, are in Christ. I'm not doubting that. I have no problem with that. I'm I'm so happy that they believe in Christ. That's the most important thing. Similarly, people who believe in conspiracy theories and whose reasons for believing are suspect are still in Christ if they believe in the resurrection. I'm not questioning that, not doubting that. Following the teachings of Jesus is what faith in the resurrection is about. Acknowledging him as Lord is what faith in the resurrection is about. That's, I I don't doubt that. I don't question it. But the things we do believe are only made significant by the things we refuse to believe. So the validity of our testimony about that faith is diminished greatly when we believe false or inscrutable. You know, inscrutable means it's not possible to determine whether it's true or false. You just don't know. You can't tell. And so you just jump out there and say it. Our, our, the validity of our testimony about our faith in the resurrection is diminished greatly when we believe false or inscrutable claims right along with the claim of the resurrection. You know, it, 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 the point I'm ultimately trying to make is very similar, and I'll close with this. It's very similar to Paul's point to the Galatians. That, he, you know, he's hoping that we will make sure that if we boast in anything, it's the cross. Not ourselves, not our favorite amendment to the Constitution, not our favorite conspiracy, but the fact that because Jesus rose from the dead and he's the only one to do it, we should believe that God has declared him both Christ and Lord. And then that changes the way we live because now we recognize he's the Lord. We follow his teachings. So I'm saying may our faith in him be unique and may our faith in him make us uniquely committed to him. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Cream. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. 
Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.